Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Under Pressure. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Spiritual House. The world we presently live in and the world of antiquity, well, both of those worlds were and are worlds filled with impressive buildings. Some cities of the world, I mean, have a building that defines the entire city. I mean, if you think of Paris, no doubt, you think of the Eiffel Tower. It's the centerpiece. It's interesting to me that the city of Athens still has the ruins of the Parthenon. Cairo has the pyramids. New York has the Statue of Liberty. London has Big Ben and so on. Well, in the ancient world, many of the cities were defined by their temples. That was certainly true of Jerusalem, the holy city, the Temple Mount at that time of Jesus. You know, it was the temple that Herod the Great had beautified to make it truly one of the wonders of the ancient world. If you get a chance to go to Jerusalem, make sure that you take a tour of the tunnel adjacent the old Temple Mount, and there you're going to see one stone. It's 46 feet long or 14 meters long. It weighs 415 tons, and in comparison to the stones used for the pyramids, well, they were only 15 tons. Is it therefore a little wonder that Matthew 24 records the disciples telling Jesus as they're, you know, looking at the temple across from the Kidron Valley, what massive stones, what a magnificent building, and it was. You know, describing it, the Jewish historian Josephus said that the temple gates doors were 49 feet high. I mean, if you can imagine that. Now, of course, the temple was stunning. You know, it spoke of the greatness of the God of Israel and that to approach the great God required reverence. And furthermore, one could only approach God in the way that God had chosen. Now, this temple was burned down and destroyed in AD 70. And just for argument's sake, let's say that the book of First Peter was written in AD 63, about seven years before the destruction of the temple. So First Peter is written when the temple still stands. And imagine also that there are other pagan temples in the ancient world, you know, in Ephesus, and where a great many had already been won to Christ, there stood the famous temple to the goddess Artemis, now considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was built entirely of marble. Or we might think of the Pantheon in Rome made you know, for Roman gods, all of them. All the great religions had a temple. And given that reality, one has to wonder what the early Christians thought about themselves. And they had no temples. They had no architectural wonders. How do you speak of the greatness of your faith when, as we've seen, Christians are a persecuted group of people. Many were slaves, not all. But as a whole, they seemed like nothing in a world of temples and buildings of grandeur. And it's against that background that we should read 1 Peter 2, 4-8. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
Now, the context of this passage is the context of the call that Peter has given for Christians to love each other. And the wider context is that in the day of persecution, Christians were to think of themselves as people who are in the best possible situation that could be imagined. Yes, they were resident aliens in the world, but they were born into a living hope that was imperishable. But still, one has to think of the reality that believers were to a large part meeting in homes for worship, and that at least to the watching world, and perhaps to them as well, they must have felt insignificant. Perhaps they're just an insignificant group of people. But if that's what they think, they're not thinking rightly. So start with a theme of a living stone. You remember I mentioned that incredibly large stone, 46 feet long, 10 feet high, 415 tons, stone worthy of an immense temple. What was a stone like that in comparison to a living stone? Well, from verse 4, believers are reminded that they came to Christ, who is the living stone. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, Peter's using an analogy. It's found in Psalm 118, verse 22, which speaks of the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You might also remember that Peter liked to speak of Jesus using this very reference from Psalm 118. In Acts 4, he's standing there giving a defense before the Jewish ruling council, and he says, I'm quoting Acts 4, verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That is to say, when the Jewish religious leaders voted to have Jesus put to death, they didn't know it, but they were fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 118. And they were also rejecting the cornerstone of the true temple. You might also remember that Jesus told a parable just like that. It's found in Matthew 21. The tenants kill a son so they can possess the inheritance, steal it from the owner. And so the stone that the builders rejected is a reference to Jesus and to his crucifixion. And notice this stone, this foundation for the entire faith of Israel was rejected by whom? By the chief priests, by the religious leaders. But this same Jesus was the one that God the Father had chosen and that he was precious in the Father's sight. Now, you have noticed that Peter calls Jesus a living stone. He calls him that most likely because of the resurrection. It's true that the chief priests had rejected him. It's true that God the Father thought of him as precious. But it's also true that he broke the bonds of death. And this stone, unlike all stones in all temples, this one lives. Now, says Peter, as you Christians go to worship, you're not entering a temple, grand as it might be, made up of dead stones. But you come to the object of your worship, Jesus, a living stone. And then Peter turns from the idea that Jesus is a living stone to the idea that all the followers of Jesus also become living stones. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that believers are also called living stones, that no doubt means that they already share in the resurrection life of Jesus. So stop there. Think of what that would mean to persecuted believers who are facing the prospect of death. You know, our day, we like to say to a person who has no prospects, you're dead. Now, even while they live, they have no hope. Death awaits. But that can't be said of persecuted believers. They've come to share in Christ's resurrection. Listen to John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has already now eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now that is, if we're going to have eternal life, we don't get it in the life to come. We have to get it now. We pass over from death to life in this world. Notice also that Jesus characterizes this world as the world of death. And I love to talk about that, especially when I speak at a funeral. I love to say, look, you know, it's a tragic mistake to say of a loved one who's died in Christ that they've passed from the land of the living. They haven't. They've passed from the land of the dying. This is the land where sorrow and sadness and hatred and violence and disease and the collapsing of all hope is a part of what we know. This is the land of shadows. This is the land of perpetual darkness. Indeed, this isn't the land of the living. It's the land of the dying. It is. But the minute we believe, we have been given citizenship in the land of the living, a land where sin and death no longer has access. So to be a living stone means that we have citizenship among the living, not among the dying. We've partaken in Christ's resurrection. Notice that all of us living stones are just not lying around somewhere in some disorganized fashion or disconnected from other living stones. Indeed, we're together being built into a spiritual house. That is to say, right now, God's building a temple. It's far greater and more significant than the temple in Jerusalem and all the pagan temples in the ancient world. This one surpasses everything because it's made of living stones that will never die and never cease to exist. So looking from this side of history, I mean, we can say, yeah, I mean, the temple of Jerusalem, it lies in ruins, but the temple that Peter spoke of is still enduring to this very day. There's something else here. Peter says we are being built up. That's to say the building isn't complete yet. New stones are always being added. The structure continues to be built. It's going to continue being built until Christ comes again. That means if you want the most impressive building ever built, it's the one that's taken 2,000 years to build and more. So what's the spiritual house? It's the house that exists under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's a building that glorifies God, made up of stones of living human beings infused by the Holy Spirit. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical to God's people. And your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there are times when you may miss the radio program. So we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebiblecanada.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series both audio and video with Dr. John. But you can also learn how to subscribe for our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our mission is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is accessible to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You know, have you noticed that our passage about living stones suddenly, you know, changes metaphors? Did you notice that when we read it? At first, we're being told, look, all you believers are, you know, living stones. 
that make up the most beautiful, magnificent temple in human history. And then for some reason, Peter doesn't play on that image any further. I mean, we might expect him to show how this temple fills the earth, that it, it's the centerpiece of hope throughout the earth. We might expect Peter to say, there are many who try to burn this temple down, but it can't be done. It'd be a remarkable study to begin to describe what the spiritual house looks like in this world. But although we might have thought Peter would do exactly that, suddenly he just changes metaphors. The metaphor now no longer describes living stones, but suddenly the metaphor moves to a holy priesthood offering up sacrifices to God. Now, let's get back to the temple in Jerusalem. You know, it's very interesting because in that temple, yes, it was beautiful, but also that temple witnessed daily sacrifices being offered. And in keeping with that theme, Peter now describes believers as a holy priesthood offering sacrifices to God. No, not animal sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices. But practically, what are we talking about? Well, the New Testament as a whole offers a number of examples. You know, Romans 12, verse 1, we're to offer up our bodies to God as living sacrifice. And here we might talk about using our bodies in purity and and holiness. We might even talk about martyrdom when the believer willingly offers up his or her own body in ultimate sacrifice to God. Now, there are other examples of spiritual sacrifices in the New Testament. Philippians 4 verse 18 speaks of giving money to spread the gospel. And there, Paul describes such a gift as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Or think of Hebrews 13, 15. We read about our worship to God, which is a sacrifice of praise to God. Indeed, all that is done where we deny ourselves, where we favor the glory of God over our own glory, where we live in holiness rather than living in sin, when we seek to give both to the poor and for the progress of the gospel, in all of those things, the church is offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. These are sacrifices done through Jesus who works in us. Now, do you see the problem with the Old Testament temple? All of its sacrifices are external. I mean, you know, the prophets constantly complained the people were offering up bulls and goats and everything else and whatever else the temple desired, but their hearts remained unmoved towards God. And that's the problem with external religion. External religion asks questions about external things. Have you offered up the right sacrifices? But internal religion asks questions about internal things. Have your former passions been crucified with Christ so that now it's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you? Here's what I think. I think that so much of evangelicalism today has made the error of placing our hope in external religion. How good's your performance worship team on Sunday? How many programs meet the felt needs of your constituents? Are you entertaining enough so that people want to come and so forth? And then we find out that it's all for nothing. But if we desired what Peter describes, things would be different. See, there's a sacrifice where we deny ourselves, where we might even do harm to ourselves, so that Christ would be glorified in us. So Peter has described Christ the living stone, and then we're living stones being built in a spiritual house or a spiritual temple. Now Peter comes back to Jesus. The first stone of the temple was laid. Notice he calls Jesus the cornerstone, verse 6. 
for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The point here is that Jesus is not just the first of the living stones, but he's the cornerstone. Now, in our day, so we have a difficulty with that image because modern buildings don't have cornerstones. They have, you know, a foundation. Sometimes, depending on the building or the land that it's built upon, I mean, builders might simply, you know, dig to hard pan and then lay the foundation there, and other buildings will have to have, you know, massive pilings and so forth. But the point that I'm trying to make is that we think of buildings in terms of the proper foundation. Now, in the ancient world, many buildings, the big and massive ones, were made up of stone taken from quarries. And the cornerstone was always the first stone to be laid for a structure. That stone was crucial to everything that was built after it because everything would be built in relation to that first stone. That first stone was so large that it formed the foundation. It held the weight of the entire building. And it was also so laid that it directed everything that would be built after it. You know, in some ancient cultures, after the cornerstone was laid, people would actually have a worship service because they'd know how significant that cornerstone was. Now, using that well-known building practice, Peter now quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16. Now, in that passage, the prophet promises that God's going to reject the rebellious spiritual leaders of Israel, and in their place, he's going to establish a sure foundation, a cornerstone that's chosen by him and precious to the spiritual life of Israel, says Peter. That's who Jesus is. The corrupt chief priests, the religious leaders, rejected Jesus, but in fact, He's the cornerstone on which all true worship stands. Anyone who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. Now, that idea of not being put to shame, that's that's a reference to the last judgment. See, there's a day coming when the great God will judge the deeds of every human being, all their sins and all their failures. And in that day, the secret sins that they have will be laid bare and they will be judged regardless of the building that they went for worship. That is, except for that one person who puts their trust in the cornerstone of the spiritual house. Verse 7 begins with the words, The honor is for you who believe. On the day of judgment, all who have believed in the cornerstone and have directed their lives by the cornerstone will be vindicated, not guilty. But on the other hand, verse 7, the latter half, For those who do not believe, well, here you might expect Peter to say there will be dishonor for them. Now, of course, had Peter said that, it would have been true. But Peter wants to emphasize something else. For those who are in the process of rejecting Jesus, listen up. Two things, he says. First, the stone that the builders rejected is the cornerstone, the only temple pleasing to God. I mean, we might think of Annas and Caiaphas, members of the Sanhedrin. Think of them on the Day of Judgment. They reckon Jesus as a man the nation must reject. Then comes Judgment Day when they hear that this very man that they rejected is the most pleasing man to the Father. The one they hated is the one the Father loves. How can I illustrate that? You know, my mom and my dad, they had a love relationship. And every once in a while, when we were kids, and we give mom especially hard time, dad suddenly intervened. He made it very clear that the woman we were abusing was the woman from all the women on the earth he had chosen as his wife. Dad was bound and determined to defend his lover against us rascals. So think of it that way. Those who reject Christ 
hadn't taken into account that the father stands ready to defend the son because the son is the object of the father's delight. Do you want to reject the one whom the father is delighted to call his son? That's the cornerstone of the temple of true worship. Think about that. Now, second, Peter quotes Isaiah 8, 14. He calls Jesus a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Indeed, it's worthwhile to quote the entire passage from Isaiah 8, 14. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Do you notice it? The cornerstone Jesus is destined to become one of two things. He's destined to be a sanctuary to all who take refuge in him. But he's also destined to be a rock in the road that you'll trip and fall over and be snared. Depends on who you are. Now, what do we make of all of that? Well, to the suffering and malign people of God that Peter's writing, who look out at the world of temples and see the world's power structures and feel themselves under the heel of men more powerful than they, they might not think that they're anything at all. I mean, we just meet in homes. There's just a few of us. We don't even have a temple. To which Peter says, haven't you heard? You're the temple. You are the temple. It's the grandest building the earth has ever seen. Indeed, it's the most enduring temple the world will ever see. Don't for a moment forget just how significant you are. You are being built as living stones on the cornerstone who is Christ. Take that to heart. Meditate on that and rejoice, for you aren't little. You're much in the eyes of God. Great message, Sean. Let me ask you, when you think about the church, I'm I'm talking about the physical place, the physical structure, how should God's people esteem or value that church building? Well, it is the structure that we meet in. I mean, I I think I want to say it that way. We should not view the, you know, the beams and the roof and everything else as, as holy. Um, but it has been, you know, consecrated to the Lord for the purpose of gathering together and for worship. And I think we should see it just in that fashion. If in some way all of our church buildings are taken away and destroyed, um, we will not cease being a church. The church are the people of God committed to one another, committed to Christ, committed to a common purpose, committed to ministry in the name of Jesus. So all of that. So view the church as a servant of that or the building as a servant of that which Christ has called you to. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada is approaching its fiscal year end, making June a financially critical month for the ministry. Over these past few years, Back to the Bible Canada has been committed to ensuring that in unpredictable times, you can rely on our Bible teaching and engagement resources to provide the comfort and guidance of God's Word. This year, to ensure we reach our goal, a few generous ministry friends who share our heart for Bible teaching have offered to help us reach our year-end target of $409,000 by pledging to match every dollar you donate up to $100,000. This will double the impact of your gift. There is no better time to consider supporting this ministry than right now. 
We'd be so grateful for any gift you might choose to give. So for more information or to donate, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.